Good morning, everyone. My name is Ted, one of the pastors here. You'll see this. Pa- Good morning. You'll see this passage on the screen. Scholars believe this may have been an early confession of faith for the first church. So as I read it, and you're a believer in Christ, read this in your hearts with me as that confession that it is. And he, Jesus, is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. What a fitting confession for us as we conclude chapter 20 of John's gospel, the third of the the resurrection appearance passages in Judah. Um, Most scholars believe uh, that chapter 20 really is the true conclusion of John's gospel, the the conclusion of the body, uh, and then chapter 21 being more of an epilogue or or an appendices. But of course, I'll let uh, Daniel and Danny preach on that in the next couple weeks and share what they've discovered from that. But this is an incredible passage, and we've seen in the past two weeks, of course, the empty tomb, the witness of the empty tomb, as Mary saw it, as John and Peter went to see it. Last week, we, of course, saw the wonderful first appearance of Jesus to Mary Magdalene. And this week, we see, much like we read from Luke, the parallel passage, Jesus' appearance to the disciples. And you'll see the title slide up here. I've entitled this sermon, Christ's mission in the world, because that's really the heartbeat of this great passage, this, this concluding, very heavy theological passage, Christ's mission in the world. And I'll talk more about that as we, as we get in. But a few things by way of introduction. I think it's important that we try to get ourselves into the frame of mind of the disciples. It's not the same as Mary. We talked a lot about last week Mary's grief and trying to empathize with her. But remember, the disciples are in a different place because events have happened on Easter Sunday that have changed their thinking a bit. As we saw in Luke's passage, uh, for one, Peter has now seen Christ at some point on that day. The Emmaus Road disciples who came and reported these things, and in fact, according to Luke, that's when Jesus appeared, right? As they were talking about how they had the opportunity to walk with Jesus, to uh, hear the greatest sermon probably ever preached, one I would have loved to have heard and then to even break bread with him. And then remember, the the women have come twice now, both uh, witnessing of an empty tomb and then of angels and even the risen Lord. So in in their state of mind now, they're not just purely sad or in grief like they may have been the beginning of the day. Now there's some joy and wonder. Have you ever been there where you hear a rumor that's just too good to believe, but you don't want to invest in it yet because you're afraid of being disappointed? I think that's where the disciples are in this moment And then the the final thing I want to tell you before we start is uh, this sermon is outlined a little bit different than normal. Uh, So when you see the number of points in the big idea, you don't need to freak out. Uh, Sometimes when there's just too much theological truth, instead of doing your two or three point, I like to do a list where we go through quickly and, and see these great truths about the gospel. And in each one of these is the theological truth, but it's also application. So, so if you're one who likes to take notes, you're going to enjoy this and, uh, and just take these as statements that are both true and pointing us forward toward obedience as the church of Jesus Christ. So without further ado, here's the big idea. It's a, it's a long, big idea, but this is a very special passage. As a result of Jesus' resurrection, John gives us nine gospel truths that are critically important for the church to understand, believe, and defend as we partner with Christ 
to fulfill his redemptive mission. I'll read that again because it's so important. As a result of Jesus' resurrection, John gives us nine gospel truths that are critically important for the church to understand, believe, and defend as we partner with Christ to fulfill his redemptive mission. Now, these nine truths are not abstract truths, all right? They don't stand by themselves. They are all directly related to Jesus' successful completion of the redemptive mission, substantiated, of course, by the resurrection and, and the ascension, was, which is yet to happen, but a done deal. So let's go ahead and read the entire passage together, and then we're going to go really quickly. I promise, this is not a three-hour sermon. We're going to go really quickly through these great truths. So if you haven't already, turn your, your Bibles to John 20. As we close out the chapter, we'll pick up in verse 19. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them. And said to them, Peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them, Peace be with you. As uh, as the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of anyone, they are forgiven. If you withhold forgiveness from them, it is withheld. Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see in his hands the marks of the nails, and place my finger into the marks of the nails, and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your fingers here and see my hands, and put your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to them, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So the first of these nine truths that you'll see on the screen We are no longer at war with God. I'll explain that in a moment, but look back with me at verse 19 and and look how he begins this. On the evening of that day, that is so significant. John's writing 60 years later, and he knows that on Easter Sunday, that was the greatest day in human history, the watershed moment of human history. He's already seen the outworkings of the effects of that day for 60 years. And he just has to say it in that way, on that day, the day that is greater than any other day that has ever been or ever will be. Now, granted, Jesus returning will be a great day, but not for, I I fear, most people on earth. So that day, Easter Sunday, the first day of the week. But you'll see the truth I put up here. We are no longer at war with God. I have a question. The answer should be easy. What happens when you go to war with God? You lose. You lose. In this, friends, I want us to see a very important theological truth that is often glossed over or missed entirely in the American church. And it is the fact that every single human being, you and I, is born at war with God. That is the bad news. If we don't believe that, the good news makes absolutely no sense, and we have to change the gospel into some pathetic gospel to which it is, unfortunately, the American 
gospel that I refer to it as. But the truth of Scripture is this. We are born totally depraved. We are born under the wrath of God. As R.C. Sproul famously said, to me at least, he said, Jesus did not come to save us to God. Jesus came to save us from God. That, my friends, is the bad news in Scripture. That makes the good news so amazing and so powerful. And you see in this, the place I see this is in Jesus' greeting. Look what he says when he comes and stands with him. By the way, the doors being locked sets up for the miracle of him just appearing. He didn't walk through walls. He just appeared. And of course, you can imagine the reaction. I hope no disciple was chewing on food at that moment because they may have choked. It definitely scared them. But look what he says immediately. Peace be with you. Now, you know that greeting. It's the same greeting that Jews still say to one another today. Shalom. That's shalom. But I tell you, it has never been uttered more literally or in fulfillment as it was on that day when Jesus said those words. Here was peace personified. Not the absence of conflict peace, but peace with God, who up until that moment, right, they were at war with. That's the beauty of salvation. When we come to faith in Jesus Christ, God is no longer at war with us. We now have peace by the blood of his son. And all scholars say that that John wants us to see that more powerful meeting. This isn't just a pleasant greeting. That's the meaning because he repeats it two more times in this passage, making it emphatic. Let's see if Paul can help us understand it. Great passage you know well from Romans 5. He says, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. So that's our first important truth. The second one is this. The apostles witnessed the risen Lord. Don't underestimate verse 20. This is incredibly important. Our confession of faith relies upon this eyewitness moment by the disciples. At least 10 of them at this time. Obviously, Thomas would see in a week. But this is so crucial. Without this eyewitness, we don't have the gospel. We don't have the word of God. This is central to our confession of faith as followers of Jesus. This moment where he is showing him the evidence of who he is. It's almost like they ask him for his ID, right? I wonder what the glorified Christ looked like. Some scholars believe he may have looked a little bit different, uh, and that's why folks didn't recognize him, or he always has to show the nail-scarred hands and, and his side to his apostles. Uh, very significant moment, And also, as we'll see here, this is fulfillment of Scripture that we've already learned and read. Do you remember back in John 16, 22? Here it is on the screen. As they're worried and fearful about what he's he's saying about leaving, he says this to them. So also you have sorrow now, but I will see you again, and your hearts will rejoice, and no one will take your joy from you. And what do we see here in verse verse 20? We see that the disciples said they were glad. They saw him, and they were glad. Now, that's like the understatement of all of time, right? Glad? Are you kidding me? I'm glad when uh, I get to work on time, or I'm glad when it doesn't rain. And uh, we should suspect that that word is much more powerful than the English, and friends, it is. I don't know why the ESV chose to translate it as that. The word in the Greek is rejoiced. They rejoiced when they saw that this was their risen Savior. Joy is an attribute of the kingdom of God alone, both now for Christians and also in the future. Can you imagine how joyful they were, 
compared to what we saw just a couple nights before in the upper room and, and the sadness and the fear and the confusion and the running away in the garden and, and Peter denying Christ three times. Friends, they rejoiced. It wasn't just that they were glad. They were joyful. And that same joy is available to all of us today. It requires us, though, in the midst of horrible circumstances to be able to look at what we have in Christ now and in the future, to see that vision of Christ waiting on the other side of the finish line for us, much like Stephen, when it's time to go home. When we can do that, when we can vertically orient our perspective, regardless of horizontal circumstances, you and I will have that same joy, that same gift of the Holy Spirit. Third truth, and the next three, by the way, are all very much linked, three, four, and five, the The third one is this, our gospel mission belongs to Christ. And that's essentially where I got the title, what inspired the title. And let's look at this a little bit closer and I'll tell you what I mean. Here in verse 21, uh, we have uh, John's great commission passage, if you will. It's very significant that all four gospel accounts end with a great commission passage for the church, not just for the disciples, for the entire church of all ages. And this, my friends, is John's. It's very brief. You'll see he gives the shalom greeting again, very significant. He's telling us that this mission is for those who now are at peace with God to take this gospel of peace to others so they too can have peace with God through the blood of Jesus Christ. So it gives him this greeting. And look how he words his great commission. He says, as the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. What's important there is he ties his great commission to one of the main themes that John has been revealing about Christ through his entire gospel. How many times have we seen Jesus say that he was sent from the Father to to do this? So it's incredible that he uses that same thematic language in his great commission. But what's more important for us, and this is in the grammar, right? You don't necessarily see it in the English, is Jesus is indicating that the mission is still his. Imagine if the Great Commission, the mission of the church, is a car. Jesus isn't pulling up and then signing the title over to us. In fact, Jesus isn't even pulling up and giving us the keys and letting us borrow it. He is continually pulling up, opening the passenger door, and inviting us to get in and join him in the fulfillment of his mission. My, my study Bible here even has as the title of this section, uh, The Church's Mission to the World. And I did not entitle it that. It's Christ's mission in the world. And that's very significant for us to see here in this passage. Uh, look, at this, um, look at this passage from John 17. This is really an outworking of part of Jesus' high priestly prayer. He's saying to the Father, they are not the disciples, the church. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. And here it is. As you sent me into the world, so have I sent them into the world. Look what D.A. Carson says about this passage. He says, just because Jesus returns to the Father does not mean he is no longer the sent one par excellence. The disciples do not take over his ministry. His mission continues and is effective in their ministry and in our ministry today. One important thing I have to say about these next three, that this one and the next two, is they're not given to just the apostles or even the disciples in that room. And we can't understand them individually. That's a Western uh, mistake because we're very individual-minded as Westerners. We have to see all three of these as being given to the church as a whole, to all of us, to the church at Blue Ridge. So the the, the mission belongs to Christ, 
And then the fourth one, which is very connected to this, the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, makes our participation possible. Think of it as required equipment for the job. This is what we need, and we see this in verse 22. Now, we, we mentioned this last week. Here again this week, we have two, not one, but two of the most difficult New Testament passages to understand that have been debated, much has been written. I can spend a half an hour each on verse 22 and 23. I'm not going to, but uh, scholars get hung up on this because they don't know if this is a separate Pentecost op, uh, experience separate from Acts 2. So this, is this something else? Is this an addition to that? Is this John's own Pentecost uh, opportunity, which is on Easter Sunday, where you know, Luke says it's uh, a couple months later, so which is it? But to save us a half an hour, it all comes down to either you, you might interpret it that way or that this is symbolic. John's being symbolic of what yet remains, what they will need coming on the day of Pentecost. And again, John said a lot about the Holy Spirit coming in the upper room discourse, so it wouldn't make sense for him to leave out something about the Holy Spirit coming to fill and strengthen. And as you look at the text, the verb breathe comes from the same root as spirit. Many of you know that. It's where we get the word pneumatic. So that's very significant. Uh, that same word is used in the Septuagint, the Greek Old Testament, in, in uh, Genesis 2, when God's breathing breath into Adam's lungs. And also in Ezekiel 37, when the valley of dry bones are, are put back together and he finally breathes his, his spirit into them. So there's definitely a play on words here. But I tend to side with uh, the scholars who say we should see this as symbolic. Now, in Luke's account, Luke 24, he does say that Jesus gives the disciples the ability to understand Scripture, that he is the fulfillment of it. So it might be something like that, but no matter what, this is definitely pointing us forward to the, the need of the Holy Spirit, right? Look again here what D.A. Carson says. He says, if John 22, this verse, is understood to be the jo Johannine or John's Pentecost, it must be frankly admitted that the results are desperately disappointing, and the promise of John 14 through 16 vastly inflated. The episode here is symbolic of the endowment that is still to come, of what they would receive. But listen, let's put all this uh, difficulty with this passage aside. The point John is making that we can't lose is we need the Holy Spirit in order to participate in the Great Commission, in order to help fulfill the Great Commission uh, and what Jesus Christ is doing. That's what we have to come away with uh, here no doubt. So let's move to number five, the th third one in this great chain of the heart of this passage. The fifth one is this, the fruit of salvation is the forgiveness of sins. That's what salvation produces that we need so desperately because our sin, again, remember, we're born God's enemies. We're born totally depraved. Our sin is what keeps us out of God's presence and out of his kingdom. That sin has to be forgiven, and we already talked about how Jesus Christ did that on the cross with his, his atoning death for our sins, even though he was perfect. So the fruit of salvation is the forgiveness of sins. And here again, we have a, a difficult passage. This reminds me, if you're familiar with Matthew 16, when Peter gets the keys of the kingdom, you read this and it seems like the disciples or maybe us as the church have this judicial authority to you know kind of decide each individual case, whether we're going to forgive their sins or not forgive their sins. That's how it reads. But of course, study of the original language helps us understand how to apply this. Once again, I'll explain briefly what I think this means, but we can't lose sight of the important point. Forgiveness of sins is the goal of the gospel mission, that 
people, as they're saved, as they believe and come to faith in Christ, would have their sins forgiven and enjoy the peace with God through Christ. So as we look at this passage, really what you and I have to understand is the church is being, being given authority here. Authority to discern whether God has worked in a heart or not. You see this in the fact that if you look at verse uh, 23 with me, where you see the words, they are forgiven for the sins of anyone, they are forgiven, or if withheld, they are withheld. It's in the perfect tense. And what that tells us is the disciples and us today as the church are really observing or whether or not God has done his work of forgiveness or, or hasn't. That's what it's saying, right? It's saying uh, that we're simply recognizing what has already been done by God or not done. So practically speaking, this verse would be very helpful for pastors determining and using discernment to decide whether someone is ready for baptism or not, ready for church membership or not. But for us, just a reminder of the glorious good news of the gospel uh, and the forgiveness of sins. Look at Peter here. This is as he's preaching at the Gentile Pentecost in Cornelius' home. Look what he says. He says, and he, Jesus, commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one appointed by God to be the judge of the living and the dead. To him, all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. There's the good news of the gospel. And if you're in Christ today, your sins have been forgiven once for all. Unlike Catholics, you don't have to go to Mass and re-sacrifice Jesus every single day, every single week on the hopes of maybe being saved. And then on the hopes of maybe going to purgatory for several centuries to work off the rest. That's not good news. That's bad news. It's the bad news I grew up with. Good news for us is it's once and for all. Once and for all. Even on your worst day and my worst day, our sins are still all forgiven. Because when the Father looks at us, he doesn't see the stain of Ted anymore. He sees the righteousness of his son, Jesus Christ. He's always pleased with his son. He's always pleased with me and you, even on our worst days. Be encouraged by that. Now, don't, don't use that as a license to sin, right? Then you need to go to Romans and be corrected there. Uh, but that is encouraging on those days. All right, so we're going to move to the Thomas episode and pick up number six, seven, number six and seven of uh, one at a time, but of these great truths that we see in the text. Number six is this, salvation is initiated by grace alone. There's one of our great five points of the Protestant Reformation. It makes us Protestant, right? Sola gratia. Salvation is initiated by grace alone. So let's return to this episode with Thomas. You'll see in verse 24, it picks up. Thomas wasn't there on Easter Sunday for some reason. No one knows why. Uh, John, like he did with Mary, um, kind of expands our understanding of these events. The synoptic authors combine both Mary's visit to the tomb. They also combine Jesus' appearance to the disciples. John shows us how it really went down, and there were two separate opportunities for Mary to go to the tomb, and then it took two visits of Jesus to appear to all the 11 apostles. So Thomas wasn't there, and so, of course, the other 10 go and tell him at some point that week, we have seen the Lord. Now, what I think is funny here, a little irony, I hope uh, the disciples realize this, they now know how they made Mary feel earlier that day, right? When she came to them and said, I've seen the Lord, and they're like, ah, crazy women, right? Now they know, I hope, how she felt, because Thomas does to them what they did to Mary, and, and so they should know how it feels. But they go to him, they tell him, but what I want you to see here is what Thomas says next. Thomas, look at the first person pronouns. There's four of them in what he says, and they're emphatic. 
And he's saying, unless I see in his hands the marks and place my fingers into the marks of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Friends, Thomas didn't know the half of it. Even that wouldn't have saved him. Nothing can open the eyes of someone to the resurrected Jesus Christ and the truth of the gospel unless God graciously initiates salvation. Unless God graciously opens up the eyes. And you see in here, Thomas is setting himself up for some kind of work salvation almost. That it's going to be up to his ability to see, to touch, to recognize. And that, my friends, is not true. Granted, he's about to see Jesus. But I believe it has more to do with the words of Christ and the grace of God working in his heart to bring about that great confession of faith that we see at the end of our passage. And you see, verse 26, eight days later, I used to always think it was Monday, but by Jewish reckoning, this is the next Sunday night. F.F. Bruce paints a wonderful little scene. He says that this is the end of unleavened bread. They've been hiding out for a week. Now at the end of unleavened bread, all the pilgrims are going to be heading back home. Great opportunity for the apostles to hide in those crowds and go up to Galilee where they knew uh, they were to go next. So they get together again. And of course, we see this time Jesus once again appears, doors are locked, he appears miraculously, says the same greeting, shalom, for the third time, very significant again. And then I love it because he shows up demonstrating a miracle that we often miss, and that is the fact that God is omniscient. He heard every single word Thomas said, and now he steps up with the very challenge that Thomas laid out and said, here, here's my hand, put your finger in it. Here's my side, go ahead and touch it. Have you ever said something you thought in secret, and then someone else comes and tells you everything you said, and you're like, you've heard that? I imagine that's Thomas's reaction right now. It reminded me of maybe the reveal moment on Undercover Boss, if you ever watched that, right? That's what's happening here. And, and friends, I just imagine at this point, Thomas is crumpling to his knees, tears streaming down his face. Humiliation that turns into humility that quickly is replaced by joy, and now this great faith that he is demonstrating in the risen Lord. What an incredibly powerful moment that we have. And here Paul reminds us in Ephesians 2, for by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works so that no one may boast. Scholars do not believe that Thomas even dared to put his finger in Jesus' hands or side, even though it would have been okay. He didn't. He didn't need to at this point. The miracle of faith had been done in his heart, as, I think as much by the words that Jesus is saying to him, as well as what he sees for himself. What a beautiful display of the grace of God. And friends, another thing that we have to understand here, this is an invitation to the reader. John intends for the reader to see this and to do likewise, assuming the reader's lost. Just as Thomas does, put his faith in the risen Lord. And here we see the seventh one, and it's connected, of course. Salvation is received by faith alone. Salvation is received by faith. Not works, by faith alone. Sola fide, another one of our great five points of the Reformation. And here we see uh, what Jesus says to him. It's beautiful there as we turn our attention back to the end of verse 27. Uh, here we, we have, friends, the call to faith by, by Jesus and a beautiful display of a confession of faith by Thomas. You could translate, do not believe, but believe. You could translate that, 
Stop your unbelieving and believe. It's literally what it says in the Greek. Stop your unbelieving, Thomas, and believe. There's a call to faith. And look at Thomas's response. You may know this verse very well, verse 28. My Lord and my God. Both words used throughout the Greek Old Testament for deity. Of course, God is always used for deity, theos, beginning of my own name. But Lord, every time in the Old Testament, kurios is used for Yahweh. But you can't say God more clearly and loudly than the combination of these two words. But friends, this isn't uh, an address of Jesus' titles by Thomas. This isn't even worship. This is a confession of faith in his Savior. You might be surprised to know, or maybe not, that Jehovah's Witness cult who has butchered our glorious New Testament by trying to remove all the references to Jesus' deity and create this abomination and call down the curses of Revelation upon themselves. Also, they translate this that Thomas is saying like, oh my, OMG, I'm not going to say it, OMG, that he's kind of cursing. He's so surprised to see Jesus like, OMG, can you believe that? That's what they say about this, but we know different. This is his confession of faith. And then, and then after saying that, look what he says. He says, have you believed because you have seen me? Now that's, I, I used to always think he was kind of slamming, throwing some shade at Thomas and the disciples. Like, you had to see me to believe, right? He's not. Think about it. Without, as I said earlier, without these eyewitnesses, we wouldn't have the gospel today. We wouldn't have the New Testament. You had to have a group of eyewitnesses on this day. These disciples, the early church, uh, the 500 that, that Paul tells us that Jesus appeared to at once, you needed that. So then it could go forth, the gospel could go forth to us even today, almost 2,000 years later. So he's commending them, but then he's also letting them know a characteristic of this mission going forward will be everyone else from this point on. After the early church will believe without seeing, and blessed are they. You could say happy. This is the second beatitude that we see in John's gospel. And he essentially is saying, happy are those, joyful are those, complete are those who have not seen and yet have believed. And uh, both uh, instances of the verb believed is, again, in the perfect tense. That means it's a belief that is absolute and standing. It's not just simply mental assent, like, oh, yeah, I believe Jesus is God, the Savior. It's not that. It's a firm, solid, life-changing, I'm putting everything in, I'm pushing all my chips to this one thing, and I'm standing upon it. That's what this verb is in the tense that it is, both for Thomas and the disciples and for us today and everyone else who has believed and been saved by the grace, the grace of God. And also... uh, Uh, We'll see that here in a minute as we get to number eight. In fact, that's where we are. We move now to to number eight and nine, and this is the the purpose statement of John's gospel. I remember almost 19 months ago, I wasn't there actually, I was on the Air Force thing, my first Air Force weekend, December 2nd, 2018, but I listened to the sermon later as as, uh, Robert kicked off John with the very first sermon, the first few verses of John's gospel, and Robert in the sermon rightly went here to this passage We needed at the beginning to understand John's purpose in writing, and we've looked at it several times since, and here we have finally arrived to his glorious purpose statement for writing this. He says, now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in the book. So that tells us John, having this wealth of knowledge of all the miracles Jesus did, next, or two weeks, you'll see that verse at the end of 21, it says, not even all the books in the world could contain them. There were so many. 
John selected out the ones that he knew would be most instructive, most powerful, again, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, to bring lost people to faith in Jesus Christ. And for any of you superhero movie fans, uh, there's all the talk now about the, the Snyder Cut, uh, the Zack Snyder Cut of Justice League. And, and I'm wondering, you know, I want to see John's cut. I want to see the director's cut of the gospel, like all of it. And I guess that's going to be impossible this side of heaven. But one day, we'll, we'll hear all the other things that Jesus did. But nonetheless, he makes a selection, and then he gives us the purpose. And I love this because it's as if John, in this moment, is looking into the camera or on a stage, looking out into the audience. He turns to the audience and says, this was all done for you. It's all done for you. And here's the purpose. He says, they're written so that you, the reader, might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And therefore, number eight, the object of saving faith is and has to be the biblical Christ. I've talked before about, oh, my faith, my faith. You may have said, oh, my faith. Our faith is nothing, absolutely nothing without the object of the faith. And here we see the object of the faith. No one comes to the Father but by Him. And here are the two of the greatest titles for the second person of the Trinity combined, making, again, an incredibly powerful statement about who this man is and why we must put our faith in Him. He is the Messiah. He is the Son of God, the object, the object of our faith, beautifully put and substantiated by John. And then you see what we receive, that by believing, you and I may have life, eternal life. Think back to the I am the bread of life, right? Came down from heaven for this very purpose, true life, real life, not the life, the lies that the world promises, but true life then or now and then in the future And there we see again that great theme of his name, faith in his name, everything about this Savior that that we have as believers in Jesus Christ. So a beautiful way to end this book and a beautiful reminder for us. And uh, as you see here, the verb uh, are written, that's very important. Again, in the perfect tense, it stands permanently. The word of God, the truth of the gospel stands permanently. It doesn't matter what the world thinks. It doesn't matter how many Bibles they may burn. They can burn them all, and it doesn't change the fact that the Word of God stands and it will be completely fulfilled, our salvation and the world's judgment. And then finally, the last truth is one that I uh, put down mainly as I stepped back and looked at the entirety of John's gospel, and that's what I'm challenging you to do right now. Beasley Murray says this, John's gospel is simply defined as this, a testament of faith written to quicken faith. What John has done in writing this gospel count, friends, is he has fulfilled the very great commission we just saw Jesus give him. Remember, he was one of the the 11 in the room that night. He has fulfilled his part. I know he did a lot more in 60 years than just write this, but that's all he did in the letters and revelation. Oh, wow. Can you imagine how many millions of people have come to faith in Christ by reading this work? He has done his part, and he has given us today an example to follow. There's two primary applications, two primary invitations for all of you, for anyone listening. And of course, we know the first one is to anyone who is lost, verse 31, believe that Jesus is the Messiah and the Son of God. But for us who are the church, who are saved, we're now being invited to take the baton from John, 
and for our part. Now, we're not going to be writing inspired work. We know that. But for our part as a church, taking the baton, following forth, and proclaiming the gospel both here, near to us, and abroad to the nations. It's a beautiful way to end this great letter. And here's a great passage from Paul that I think it's important we look at right now. Look at it. Paul asked these questions that should evoke a response from us. He says, How then will they, lost people, call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him, in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they, that's the church now, to preach unless they are sent? So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. I'm going to go ahead and invite the, uh, the band to come back up as we transition back to worship and song. And as they're coming, I have one more passage for you on the screen. This is the, the very ending of that great chapter I've told you about the last couple of weeks, 1 Corinthians 15. Look how Paul ends. I think it's a good way for us to end as well. Paul says, thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. What a great encouragement at the end of his great chapter on all the many applications of the resurrection, both Christ's and the one that we have as believers coming in the future. Pray with me. Father, I thank you for this uh, time been a sad week for me because I know this is my last sermon in John's gospel. I've done most of the teaching, which has been a gracious experience. I'm honored to have had my part over the past year of preaching, but total year and a half of time. Lord, it has been great. I've learned so much. My hope and prayer is that others have as well, and that you have even cast seeds of faith into the hearts of the lost in this room and in the rooms that we have preached this gospel for so long now. Lord, thank you for your glorious truth. Thank you for all these wonderful truths that we've seen today, Lord. Let us take them seriously. Let us seek to understand them, to obey them, and apply them as a church, as individuals, but, but as a whole church, that we could be obedient, that we could remember this isn't our mission. This is your mission. You're still in charge of it. You're still fulfilling it, and you're going to fulfill it with or without us. But, oh, Lord, that we would be accursed if we would reject and refuse this invitation to join you. But in the contrary, we would join you each and every day. We would continually seek to make sure as a congregation we are poised to follow, poised to obey, poised to be your hands and feet in the world on mission with this glorious truth. Wouldn't you do that now, Lord? Wouldn't you work greatly in our hearts? If there's anyone here, and I know I'd probably be in this line, who has been disobedient to be in mission, convict us of that. Let us repent. Let us surrender individually, but also as a whole church to be more obedient to what you're calling us to do in the context of taking the gospel to the nations and even our neighbors. Of course, Lord, the primary invitation of this gospel, which we've just been reminded, is that those who are lost who hear these words would repent and believe. I'm sure someone in this room doesn't know you. I'm positive of it. Yet we even have our children, Lord, who need to come to faith, who we're praying will be saved. Would you plant, Lord? Would you water? Would you even bring a harvest today of souls leading them to repent and believe this truth? of putting it all on the line, total and absolute confidence and faith in you, Jesus, that you are the Christ, you are the Son of God, and you are the only way to be saved and to be with the Father. Thank you, Lord, for this time as we continue to worship. Let us respond wholeheartedly to this final song today and continue to quicken faith in our hearts and the hearts of the lost. 
In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.